So there are ways you could figure out how to communicate with your manager without being a no person. Maybe it's a weekly check-in, as simple as a weekly check-in. This is what I'm working on now. This is my level of prioritization. These are the things that have been added to my list. Should I shift the priorities in any way? So much of it is just unintentional. As a manager, I don't want my direct reports being working on something that I know is not going to be important in the long run, or maybe something has shifted. So I'm grateful for the chance to recalibrate if it's done in the spirit of, not what do I take off my list? I'm overwhelmed, but more help me prioritize this and I just so I can be in the right place. And that can be a very good way to open up a channel of communication with your boss. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. I'm Ferina Hefti, and I believe that absolutely no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, often male, middle-class people leading our organizations. I want us to change this together. In fact, I hope that many of you listening to this podcast right now will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus, which is all about supporting parents to get to senior leadership roles through equal career progression. In this week's episode, I talk to Karen Dillon about what microstress is, how to deal with it, and what to do when you are just in a moment of complete overwhelm. Enjoy the conversation. A very warm welcome, Karen, to the podcast. Let's start with you introducing who you are, what you do for work, and who is in your family. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I am Karen Dillon. I am a former editor of Harvard Business Review magazine and author of a number of books. But my most recent book is The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems, and Here's the Key, and What to Do About It. So I'm an author and editor, and I'm really glad to be here. I am also, probably I would have put it at the top of this, I am the mother of two grown children who are in or out, just about to be out of college and have juggled all the juggles that your listeners are going to be interested in today. <laughs> and just before you came on, you have helpfully shared with me that the micro-stress evolving from children doesn't stop past <laughs> college. So I look forward to talking to you about this. But I'm going to ask you a question we ask of everybody. What did you used to believe about combining a big career with young children that you don't believe anymore? I used to believe that children needed us most when we were trying to juggle when they were very, very small. So the kind of care, you know, the basic care. So I was assuming that child care as a working parent would be most important and most difficult when they were, you know, from birth to whenever they went off to some school. But now that I'm older and my children are grown-ish, I can tell you that that never stops. It's just different. The, the needs of your children are different and your needs as a parent and your relationship evolves. So I remember when I was a young manager of people who began to take maternity leave and come back thinking once they were back from maternity leave and they had sorted out their childcare, we'd be all, you know, back to normal. And I remember learning from other and then certainly in my own shoes later, just the needs evolve, they change. And it's a constant challenge in joy, but a constant challenge all the way into adulthood. <laughs> and we used the word micro-stress, which, and the reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast, I saw it pop up somewhere on social media and I thought, oh, I really identify with that. It's all those little things. 
But what do you define as microstress? What, what is it? So microstress in our definition is something very specific. It, it came out of research we were doing on high performers, people who were seen by their employers as doing exceptionally well. And we were just looking at them for what did they do better than the rest of us? What could we learn about how they were more efficient and more effective and things like that? And what we ended up learning or realizing was something really different than we had expected, which was that so many of them were appeared to be, you know, having it all together, doing better than the rest of us, you know, to be admired in every way. But when we dug down a little bit deeper, they, just like many of us, were kind of hanging on by a thread some days that their lives were filled not with macro stresses, big stresses that we know about, we know how to talk about death in the family, loss of a job, serious financial problems, but what we came to call in our research micro stresses. And what we mean by that are moments of stress that are so brief and so tiny that our brains barely register them, but add up, they add up over time to something very significant. And micro stress, again, in our definition, is always caused through an interaction with someone else. So it's not just you miss the bus and you're frustrated. It would be something more like your boss keeps changing subtly their expectations of you or you and a colleague are realize you're working in a slightly misaligned way and it's going to cause you both more work. There are interactions with other people that have brief moments of stress that really reverberate for a really long time. And most of us have dozens of microstress in a day, a week, a month, and they take a significant toll on us, even though we're not almost recognizing that they're happening. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really interesting, this idea that actually the high performers can do really well. And I'm sure a lot of listeners identify with this. And, you know, the fellows who are also many of them listening to our programs, we support people who are really doing very well in their careers. They do experience that. And it feels like in order to increase your level of happiness, there's if we were to able to sort out that constant level of stressedness with the small things would be very easy. But just practically, how is it even possible? Because I'm just painting your picture. This week we are recording, it's the last day of the school term in the UK. So this week I discovered, and my partner, we both discovered that the school finishes at 12 instead of at five, because we haven't read the emails properly by the school. We also have friends visiting, which is wonderful, but we realize we don't have coffee and we really should be offering them coffee. Like, I mean, those are tiny things, but it's just like so many small, small things. And end of term, any UK listeners will know in school, it's amazing all the things, small things you need to prepare that school expects you to bring in. So I've read the chapter about managing with your boss and, you know, managing your boss upwards. You can't really do that with when you have school related responsibilities. How do you I know there's not a simple fix. Sorry, it feels like I'm downloading all my microstresses onto you right now. But where do you start dealing with that sort of situation of utter an influx of small stuff? So first of all, I do totally understand because we lived in the UK for two years and my children went to school in the UK. So I do absolutely know what that at that last day of school is and all the things that happen and the sort of miscommunication with school, with your co-parent, et cetera. So I, I do understand. I really do. I guess one thing I would say is you're starting with the things that are at the top of your pile and they are stressful, obviously, what you just talked about. But one of the suggestions we make in the book is that there are so many other ones that if you can eliminate some other ones that you're forgetting about right now, it makes it a little bit less overwhelming to cope with the things that you're coping with right now. So you probably have, if you took 10 minutes to think about it, you probably have a dozen other things that have built your level of stress up during this week. And so these extra things are kind of the straw breaking the camel's back. 
But one of the things we found in our research, and there's years of social science research that will support this, is that removing even just a couple of negative interactions that lead to microstress in your week can play a really significant role in the rest of your life. Because what happens for most of us is that microstresses from our work day build up all day. And then we get home or we're present at home in some way. And it's sort of like our cup is almost overflowing from microstress anyway. So the one or two things that trigger us at home when we get home, microstresses that happen, somehow end up being feeling disproportionately big for us. It's the thing that you know really stresses us most. And there's lots of reasons for that. It's because we've, our brain is literally kind of already filled up with stress from that day. Stress doesn't go away. Your body remembers it. It's taking a toll on you. And the ones that trigger you are the ones that also come attached with years of memories and history. Our brains are wired to predict behavior from people that we know have known for a long time. And so we just it comes laden with context and the context can be stressful sometimes. So just when you come home, you're sort of most vulnerable to stresses and that just happens. So micro stress at home can feel more powerful. But my point is that if you can find some ways to minimize the stress in other parts of your life, it will make those feel a little bit less overwhelming. But also I'm just gonna say, as a working parent myself and understanding that, I was like, just be kinder to yourself. You need coffee in the house. Maybe you just get it together or you tell them you're running out. To like just nobody has, it's impossible to be perfect. <laughs> and you are adding some stress to yourself. That's one within your control, right? That's something where maybe you and your partner have, have disagreed or been curt with one another about whose responsibility it was for the coffee. And that brings some stress. But the reality is that's one I would advise you to be kinder to yourself and get the coffee once they're there, run out and pick it up together or take them up for coffee. There are so many things you can't control and the ones you can maybe try to take the stress off yourself, the micro stress off yourself that you're adding to yourself by your own high expectations. Mm. It's very true. And actually, the funny end of this coffee story is that the guests just got the coffee yes, themselves. Yes, yes. And they were very happy to do that. <laughs> it was absolutely no problem. <laughs> so... I think it is interesting though. So when you are, I think there's something about, you also write in the book about being stressed about stress in itself and that you think you should be more, my understanding is that a lot of people think they should be more relaxed because you see on Instagram, people doing yoga and mindfulness and all that. Based on your research, what would be the mindset do you think that we should have? Maybe that's the wrong phrase, but basically, what are you telling yourself? And I'm sure you are still experiencing microstress. What mindset are you approaching it with now, having done that research compared to before? So one of the things that I tell myself and I like to tell people is this is real. These things sound small, right? A coffee story sounds small, but it caused you real stress. It caused your partner real stress and it reverberated, even if you don't, you weren't aware of it, that the moment of realizing you didn't have coffee and pointing fingers at who was supposed to get it or who had time to get it, that carried on in some subtle ways in the rest of your day, maybe even the week, maybe even the day that your guests were arriving. And so, and you add so many of those in, I just want to, you know, sort of give people a, a break, you know, psychologically realize that this is real stress and it's taking a toll. So be kinder to yourself to start with that, recognizing that this stuff is causing you genuine stress and it it's taking a physiological toll on your body. And I'll just give one example from our research, which is really interesting. Neuroscientists have done some research that suggests that if any of us are exposed to social stress, some form of social stress within two hours of a meal. So Let's just say we're feeling, you know, something goes wrong socially or we're feeling out of the loop or someone's confrontational to us in some way within two hours of eating a meal. Our bodies will metabolize that meal as if we ate 104 
more calories than we did. Now that's funny and that sounds like it's sort of half a candy bar, but if that happened to us every day, and for some of us it does, you could potentially gain 11 pounds in one year. So the briefness of being around some kind of social stress that stressed you can literally make you gain weight over the course of a year. And we also know that our minds process pain in someone else that we love. If we're in the same room with someone that, that we love, our brains process that pain as if we're feeling the pain too. It's called mirror neurons. So there's a real physical physiological toll to all of these small things. So my first message is just be kinder to yourself. We as a society so often are, and especially for people who are high performers, our kind of expectation is you have to be stronger to get through this stuff that, you know, you have to have internal grit and lots of the things you mentioned, yoga and mindfulness, self-care things. Those are all very good things. There's no question. I think they're very good for you. But the goal of those things largely is to make you stronger, to deal with more and more stress. And one of the big messages of our book that I I'm trying to put in place in my own life is try to remove a couple because removing a negative interaction or stress can have up to five times the impact of adding a positive. So if you are able to remove a couple, it may be a more powerful change, positive change in your life than adding more things to make you just stronger to deal with more stress. So I just think realizing it's real and it's okay to feel these things and you can maybe do some small things that will make a big difference. And then on top of it, just be kinder to yourself. We're all juggling so much micro stress all the time. It's, it's a real challenge for everybody, especially working parents. Mm. And you write in the book about bosses and how bosses can be a real source or the relationship, the interaction between yourself and your boss can be a real source of micro stress. And we're not talking here about really evil people. Can you tell me what is the cause of that, the fact that your boss can cause such a, a sense of constant small stresses? So you made a great point and a great distinction. In general, in microstress, we're not talking about people who are really trying to be jerks or toxic relationships or hostile people or people trying to cut you down. This is just the reality. Microstress comes from the reality of how busy and how hectic and how many people we have to work with and coordinate within our life. And so for many bosses, it's unintentional or just their own panic to get something done. But a prime form of microstress is an unpredictable authority figure, meaning your boss or your manager might just kind of change priorities from time to time and you're still catching up with the last one. And that causes you stress. It causes what you're working on stress. You have to reprioritize something. It could be simple. I used to have a boss that would be enthusiastically stop you in the hall with very excited new ideas. And you'd walk away thinking, am I supposed to do that now and drop everything else? Or was he just brainstorming? Or you don't have your arms around how important that is. And that's stressful even just by itself. And then knowing how much I'm supposed to be the person, the can-do person, the get-it-done person. So people just kind of keep going down paths. And suddenly you find your work is very stressful just because it's changing in small, subtle ways. Or very commonly, you could just be misaligned with a colleague or a boss. Like you think you're supposed to be doing this. They think you're supposed to be slightly different this. And then you don't find out till you're partly into the project. My daughter is working on her master's thesis, and she was just telling me that an article she was working on getting placed, an academic article with one of her peers, they just misaligned on who was editing what, and it wasn't in track changes mode. And it, that's a micro stress because that was nobody had bad intentions there, but now somebody has to go back and figure out where the edits went in and were you doing these edits? Were I doing that? You know, you multiply that by many things that happen in the course of our week, but managers or, or bosses are people we're trying to please and they have a lot of control and they absolutely do not always realize the micro stress they're causing other people because if they did, 
they would realize it's not the most effective way to manage. They're not going to get the best out of that person over the long run, but they do it unintentionally and they create microstress that will reverberate back to them in some way with employees being overwhelmed or confused or not doing work in the way that the boss is expecting it because it hasn't been communicated clearly. Mm. And do you have direct reports now yourself as an author? I I do actually in a job that's unrelated to my being author, I have one direct report, but I have managed Mm -hmm. over time dozens and dozens of direct reports. Mm. And how, if anything, what specifically have you changed following this research that is about you creating less microstress to your direct reports? One thing I do now routinely, and I sort of stop and say it's the microstress moment at the end of meetings with colleagues as well as with my direct report is I spend five minutes trying to make sure we recap what we just agreed to. It's so common that with really good intentions, the meeting goes well, we all hang up. It wasn't clear who had what role or responsibility or did we end up, you know, we talked about so many things. Did we end up saying next week or two weeks? You know, are you doing the first chapter? I do. Good intentions. I love my colleagues. I really love my colleagues. And I am positive I create microstress by having that conversation concluded in my head, but not having it concluded in the room or on the Zoom call. So I for sure take five minutes to just recap. And it sounds sort of rudimentary, but I do it. So let me confirm with everyone, right? Josh, you're going to do the first draft of this and you're going to get it to me by next week. Meredith, can you send me a reminder on Wednesday? So I just do that. Sounds remedial, but I think it does help eliminate. That's a really common source of micro stress is just misalignment from good intentions. We all left that meeting, went on to something else and then We can't quite remember and we're waiting for someone else to trigger us. So I do that for sure. Mm -hmm. And for any of our listeners who do have a boss who changes things, who comes up with exciting new ideas, what can they do? They're not in the power of setting the agenda. They might be able to suggest things, but they're not the boss in that situation. What can they do to, you know, just get a bit less of that urgent micro stress creation? So yes, I understand it's a dilemma. You can't sort of just say, no, I'm busy with other things. It it is a difficult position, but we have some suggestions from our research that people might find helpful. One is there might be a person in your organization who just understands that boss well, not saying I have a secret back channel, but just someone who's worked with them before who might help you decode. You know, when he says he's excited about X, you know, does that mean I should jump right in? And they might have some good suggestions on, oh no, I think what he wants is for you to kind of capture the idea, but that could be helpful. I'm not suggesting a political play. It's more, is there a person who could be kind of a coach for you in working with that? And that can be an effective way to not present that to the boss yet, but start to just get better at reading them. Because for so many people, we're working with new people all the time and we just don't know the shorthand. You know, what is, does that mean it's urgent or not? So that's one thing. You also can have peers that can be helpful to you. You know, how would you respond to this? Which would I have done differently? Again, protecting yourself, not being sort of super vulnerable or looking like you're scheming, but just someone to help you understand or figure out how you're doing things. We have a great example in a book of a new manager coming into a department where the department was used to getting things done and pleasing the manager. And this was a person who literally was a hallway new idea and I got it and they were full of ideas. 
And they finally figured out that they were being counterproductive and stressing each other, the manager and the direct report. And so they came up with a system, which they both liked, and it works pretty well, where they agree when there's a new ask or a new idea being mentioned, the direct report will say, so I understand on a scale of one to 10, is this a 10? Get on this right away. Very important. This should this should supersede other work. Is this mm-hmm. a three, think about it, put it on the wish list, or is this somewhere in the middle? And the manager will say, you know what, this is a five, you know, I would like you to work on it, but it's not more important than the things you're doing. Let's check in in a couple of weeks. And it became sort of a little, you know, fun shorthand that they both understood what they were doing, the rules, the why they were doing it. And it was just a shorthand conversation. So there are ways you could figure out how to communicate with your manager without being a no person. Maybe it's a weekly check-in, as simple as a weekly check-in. This is what I'm working on now. This is my level of prioritization. These are the things that have been added to my list? Should I shift the priorities in any way? So much of it is just unintentional. As a manager, I don't want my direct reports being working on something that I know is not going to be important in the long run, or maybe something has shifted. So I'm grateful for the chance to recalibrate if it's done in the spirit of not, what do I take off my list? I'm overwhelmed, but more help me prioritize this and I just so I can be in the right place. And that can be a very good way to open up a channel of communication with your boss. Mm, definitely. And I don't know if you think your work is relevant there, but I do think it is. You know, this situation where you do have days or you might have evenings where you just don't want to check emails, but there are other people who work very differently and who will send you lots of messages, texts, emails, WhatsApp messages, etc. During, you know, you're bathing your children and then you end up looking at it while your children are being bathed and actually one of them falls into the water, screams, so you feel guilty obviously not talking about it from personal experience at all. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But yeah, is that something you can relate to? Because I feel like that is exactly that microservice. And you can't tell your boss and your team members not to send emails at this time. But from your perspective, what have you learned about dealing with this? So that is a great example. And I can personally relate to that on both ends of that. And also we have some good ideas in the book about that. That's a very, very common scenario. And it's often because you just have different ways of working. It's not necessarily because whoever sent you the WhatsApp or the email expects you to respond, but because that's just their time to do it and get it off their mind. But it does create an atmosphere of stress. It definitely does. It's an implied expectation that you're you know, 24-7 and you're involved in it. it ruins your night, right? Looking at an email at 10 p.m. after you're sort of exhausted from everything ruins your night. I, as a manager, used to send a lot of emails over the weekend because it was one of the quieter times when my kids were out doing something I could sort of catch up. And I felt good about it because I was clearing my deck. But until one of my direct reports said to me, do you know when you send me a weekend email, it implies that I'm supposed to respond and then I'm working on the weekend. And I 100% hadn't meant that. It was really about me getting it out there. So we ended up agreeing that I would send things on delayed. You know, it would be Monday morning at eight o'clock and I would write it over the weekend, but I would do the delayed send so that they wouldn't come in anyone's inbox until Monday morning, unless for some reason it was an emergency, which it almost never is. So I started doing that as a practice, doing the delayed send, the time send, which which helped a lot. But there's a great exercise that we suggest in the book where you get a team together, take about half an hour, 45 minutes to do a norms of collaboration. That's what we call it. But it's basically, right, go on a whiteboard or on a piece of paper on the left-hand side, right, all of the ways that we communicate and collaborate in some way. So email, instant messaging, Zoom calls, you know, in-person meetings, whatever they are. And then on the right, put two columns. On the top, put two columns positive ways we want to continue this and things we want to stop. And just as a team, work through briefly 
what things that you've unintentionally fallen into that you don't necessarily want to continue and what things are important to continue. So an example is, well, because everybody, every organization I know adds technology, we never take it away, right? So what might have been email and text becomes email and text and Slack. And, you know, we just suddenly have eight different modes, modalities of communicating. So things have just unintentionally become ever sprawled all over the place. So you might, for example, your case is really good, agree as a team, we don't want to send emails to one another after 8 p.m. unless it's important. So we agree that's going to be our, our protocol. So if you need to do that, to send it on delayed release or please no long explanations in email, put it in bullet points or we have an in-person meeting to go through it because it's difficult to wade through the long text on email or, or text, God forbid, it's even harder. We stop the routine CCing unless it's important for everyone to genuinely be, and definitely no need to reply to all with thanks, sound good. You just, it sounds simple, but you go through the kind of ways you've unintentionally let that communication creep and it's affecting people. And you agree as a team so that no one feels like they individually have to say, please, can you not send, I'm not going to respond to emails until tomorrow morning because it's really hard on me. You just agree as a team. That's a reasonable expectation that you not, we won't send emails that arrive in anyone's inbox after 8 p.m. at night or whatever it is. The team team that we studied in our research that did this thinks they brought back, I think like 20% of the week or something like that by changing these norms of communication. They allowed themselves a lot more time to get through things and they were more efficient. And again, it's not ill-intentioned. It's just that we kept adding ways that we wanted to communicate and things sprawled. Mm-hmm. It's very true. It's all this automatic stuff. And I think a place, I've just had a workshop yesterday with some of our alumni and it was really interesting how so many of the tools that we use reasonably well at work we just don't use at home and exactly these automatic responses they happen all the time and then that creates small stressful moments aside from generally becoming a better person and sleeping more and all that what's the solution assuming not everybody does live with a partner but if you do live with a partner you come home to screaming kids again no correlation to my home life (laughs) (laughs) but let's stick to that what do you think can you do to reduce that tension on those really small things you don't even fight you just send small moments of stress to each other Well, I will tell you if it makes you feel better. First of all, I do understand that scenario exactly. But the second thing is that we have an app that we've created that goes with the MicroStress Effect book. It's free in the Google Play Store and then the Apple Store that asks people to sort of assess their top five microstresses. And we give them lots of suggestions for what to do about it. I recommend it to your listeners if if you wish. But the single highest scoring category so far from all the people who've done the app, and there are quite a few, is draining interactions with family and friends. (laughs) So it's a universal thing that we actually unintentionally exactly what you talked about. Life just gets so overwhelming and we sometimes become most curt and most challenging and are most stressed by the people that we love the most. When I do a presentation, I often show a a picture of one of the greatest sources of joy in my life. And it's me and my daughter and having spending time together out on a hiking trip and whatever. And they said, now let me share for you just something different. One of the greatest sources of micro stress in my life. And it's the same picture of me and my daughter. You know, family poses a special challenge. So I just have, again, empathy there. But one of the suggestions we have in the book, which will sound counterintuitive, but 
as we go through life, our lives become narrower because we have so many responsibilities. We, it's work and home and friends and our identity outside of work just takes a back seat for a long time. And that's actually in some ways counterproductive to your ability to cope with and respond to the micro stress. We know that in the people in our research who did much, much better with micro stress were people who tried to maintain, even in small moments of connection, authentic connections with people outside of family and work that just help their mind. It, it's literally good for your mind to see things differently, other people's perspective on things, to be challenged in different ways, to think about things totally differently, is try to maintain some connections with you know two or even three groups outside of family and work. And it doesn't have to mean you're suddenly spending every weekend you know with a hiking group, or it can be something small, or sometimes you can combine it with family. We had someone who started doing a weekly football match, soccer game, with his kids and other parents to just so they spent time with their kids, but they also had adult conversations in, in the middle of those matches, and that became really important to them. Being connected to friends from your past, even if it's just over a group chat on email or some way or on a text some way, those connections actually help kind of inoculate you a little bit to the stresses that are big that come in your work life and in your home life. So it's really important to not let yourself completely get rid of those extra parts of your life that we all do as we get older, because it's going to really help you navigate the micro stresses of everyday life. Yeah, I've recently started a choir. And before that, I didn't have any hobbies anymore, apart from maybe cycling. And it's been so transformative, mainly because there are no other parents, or not, there are a few other parents, but lots of people have very different lives. And it's very refreshing to talk to someone about in their 20s about their dating life. You know, it's not something I think about on a day to day basis. And it's really lovely to be exposed to a different life and a different way of thinking. But you mentioned people who dealt the best with those micro stresses, and I'm intrigued by that. What surprised you most about what they did? So the vast majority of the people in our research were as micro-stressed as the rest of us. So that was the bulk. But what became apparent where there was a small subset that just navigated it better and they were very successful professionally, but they had a rich, a richer life than lots of people at their age and stage. And so we started calling them the 10 percenters because it was roughly 10% of the people in our research. So the things we noticed about them, there were a couple of things. One is they were more willing to push back on individual interactions that cause micro stress. So they would be the ones who would have that conversation with their manager about misalignment or find ways to minimize the friction with colleagues just because we're coming from different responsibilities. They were just more comfortable with having those conversations and finding ways around it. And they never saw it as the person, the relationship is the problem. It's this particular interaction. So we sort of admired and some of the suggestions in the book are, are largely from them. How do they deal with this form of microstress and this form of microstress? So they were just more comfortable doing that. And I think that was a really good lesson that it's, it's okay to talk about the interaction. Even for example, I remember somebody who had a friend who was, they loved this friend. It was a longtime friend, but they were always like a pretty heavy drinker and loud and they didn't enjoy going out with them, you know, to the pub or whatever, because it just became a stressful interaction. Even though they loved this friend, they were able to sort of shift it to like movies and dinner without the friend, you know, the friendship did not take a huge toll. They just chose not to do that. They could shift it in some subtle way without it having to diminish the relationship. So one, they were willing to push back. Two, they were actually better than most people at choosing to let go and rise above a certain numbers of micro stresses, things that you're never going to change. 
that ultimately they're not going to matter in the long run. You just, it sort of got under your craw. It just sort of bugged you for a while. They just chose to, I'm not going to let that one bother me. I'm just going to let it go. You know, one of the big sources of micro stress is what we call secondhand stress. Somebody else is really stressed around you all the time. And then somehow you start absorbing their stress. They were just better at, I'm not going to pick up that vibe. I'm going to choose to, I understand it. I see that you're stressed and I'm sorry. I am not going to consciously adopt your stress. And as parents, we do that all the time with our kids. We take on what their stresses are, become our stresses and we probably make it worse. They were better at sort of choosing a few, not not all of them, they're human, but to, to choose, I'm not consciously not going to let that one get me. And the third thing they did better is what we were just talking about with your choir, with your singing group. I think that's fantastic. They were better than most of us at developing and maintaining what we call multidimensional lives. They made time in small moments. I keep wanting to stress small moments because it's not like they have more time than the rest of us, but they, they were able to find ways in their life that they were connected to people outside of work and home and something that had meaning for them. One of our favorite examples is, is a top neurosurgeon at a top hospital in New York whose life had been, of course, completely focused on his professional accomplishments and his family. And then after we did our initial research with him, he sort of called us back and said, you know what, I've joined a rock band. <laughs> and he was, you know, an aging guy. And he had gone into a local music store to get some music to remind himself that he was a guitar player. And he hadn't done it for very much for a long time. It was his self-identity when he was 20, but he'd lost it. And he saw a flyer for, we're looking for a guitar player, what we lack in, in talent, we make up for in volume or something like that. And he ended up joining this kind of casual week and, you know, jam band where the people were in their 20s. He was in his 40s. And he said, you know what, I'm having so much fun. Some exactly what you talked about. We just, we talk about different things. We're not best friends, but I really love being part of this and the interactions we have. And I see more of the world through their eyes. And it's really, really refreshing to me. So you are exactly, I'm going to commend you for your choir, for your singing group. I actually joined one when I, when I lived in London. I had just moved to London with my family and my kids and my life could have been all about the micro stresses. My husband saw a flyer for a choral group and I joined it and I exactly what it was. I loved being part of it. I didn't end, end up knowing people super well, but I loved going there. I loved hearing the conversations around me. I loved sharing little snippets of my week. It's just, it's really refreshing in a way that's surprising when you sometimes think you're too tired to do that, too tired to go and, and to spend time doing that. I'm guessing you will always come back feeling so glad that you did and refreshed and it's fueled your mind a little bit for, for a little bit. You just think of different things and now you're, now you're involved in so-and-so's dating story and you can't wait for the next one to find out what happened or whatever. It adds dimension to our life, which is very powerful antidote to micro stress. Mm, I think it's such an interesting idea of richness in your life. I think that I've never thought about it, but it's exactly that. It's interesting about also not absorbing other people's stresses or being yourself the person who makes everybody stress because you're very vocal about your stress. Aside from, again, yoga, counseling or mindfulness or just having a personality change, what advice do you have around it's just about block. You can tell from my question that I'm not that person. I'm very, <laughs> I will absorb everything, I think, and also give out a lot of how I feel to everybody. So yeah, what's your advice there? I mean, are those people, did they, were they just born that way or did they develop somehow disability? 
I don't know that answer, but I am a person who does that too. I absorb. And then here, here's the worst part because I do absorb other people's stress. And then especially as a parent, right? You, you like for me, it's my children's, their stress is my stress. But I know consciously, if I think about it, I make it worse because I'm so stressed. I kind of keep pecking at it or coming around or trying to solve it. And then I'm adding stress to them. And then the cycle begins. It's sort of, we keep circling back and forth with stress. I don't know. None of us can have a personality change and I will never not worry about my kids and I will never not be stressed on their behalf. But I, have made a couple of conscious choices of things that I am I am going to not stress about that until my child asks me to be involved in stressing about like I'm going to wait until the moment actually where I've been asked to help as opposed to advance worrying for them you pick one or two things that start with that it's overwhelming to you can't change everything and we're human but pick one or two things that if you're being a little bit objective you can say I don't really don't need to always stress about that or I'm going to choose to not stress about that and see what happens there was a great someone in our research who was a super, super high achiever and he was involved in everything at work and he was the master manager of everything. And then he really started to fall off. He started to be overwhelmed by things and his HR department eventually asked him to take a few weeks off because we just want you to reset a bit. You're you're not, you're, the juggling has gotten too hard for you and you're such a high performer. We don't understand. So we want you to take a break. And they told him he could not check email. He could, he had to be completely offline. So he did. And I think he did some kind of a retreat, but he, he did not check. He was, he was completely off the grid for work. And when he came back, having had a little bit of a refresh, he started to realize going through his emails because he started at the top and worked his way back. So he wasn't working in the sequence in which the, the emails came. He was starting with the kind of most recent thing. He realized that a lot of times problems were solved fine without him, or he needn't have been the individual that got involved in everything or his direct reports handled something well. It was just a real eye opener for him that he had been so working on the assumption that he personally had to understand and be involved in and communicate every single thing. And in reality, things in general functioned very well without him, it caused him to take a step back and rethink, okay, where am I most adding value and where can I let go of some of these stresses? Someone else gets stressed about it, but that's okay. And it was a real game shift for him. So just thinking about a couple of places you might consciously choose to not choose to be stressed will be a good start. Yeah. I think it's very interesting because again, this might come out at a time when school starts in the UK, which is often a stressful time for parents and you get quite a lot of messages about all the things you should be doing and the weekly or the daily reading you should be doing with your child and with my first child I got really stressed about doing reading daily and I did it and with my second child I really didn't and it's so interesting how both of them were exactly at the same level at the end of the year <laughs> so you know that's exactly a good example in that there are some things you do just totally fine. If you're not stressed about, it's okay if you don't do everything perfectly. We, you know, so much we have to trust ourselves a little bit. I understand that too, because I got all those same messages, but it, it sometimes you realize the school unintentionally creates so much work for parents and maybe it's not all as important as it seems. One of the things that people in our research commented on is what they call parent homework. So it's, it's technically mm -hmm. the child's homework, but somehow it becomes such a big or elaborate project that you, the parent, have to get involved. There's a poster due on Monday and you, know, you have to go out and buy the supplies and you don't have it and force the kid to sit down and do it. So I, I think there's something to be said for having conversations with school that about prioritization, but also, again, being kinder to your yourself, your kid's going to be fine. Your kid's going to be fine. Mm, it is true. Even if like me and my partner, we forget, both of us forget that the school day finishes <laughs> at 12 on the last day, <laughs> which is what happened today. 
so I think school is a really good example because you are working work, you might be preparing a really important presentation, you're about to go into a meeting with senior stakeholders, and then there's another text from school reminding you that you should be bringing in a red outfit for diversity day or whatever it is. Sometimes these dis- small distractions can be a real source of micro-stress. How do you deal with those? What have you learned from your research around dealing with these constant small distractions? Because you can't not do it. Otherwise, your kid is going to be the only one who is not in a red outfit. Of course, of course. So that's a really great example because there's actually some interesting research that says that even the mere act of looking down at a text that comes in when you're in a meeting or something else will immediately distract you for, I think, it's 61 seconds. But if you in any way start to process it or start to, to think about it or work it, it could take you out of whatever you're doing for 20 minutes. Like your mind's not in the game for 20 minutes. And if and that happens multiple times through a day, it's really, really big challenge to get through the day. So it's real. I mean, that that's real. And of course, you can't not do that. Two things I would think about is sort of with colleagues just being open. I've forgotten the red outfit today. I have to figure out how to solve it. I'm going to just take 10 minutes to figure out if I can come up with the solution. Just just other people will understand, I think, in some ways and recognizing that, you know, humans are humans, but minimizing the other distractions if you possibly can. For example, for example, asking your partner to not text you during the day unless it's something that you need to deal with. It's, it's important and needs to be dealt with during the day. So you just don't get into the habits of sharing things that can wait until the end of the day. My co-author Rob in the book talks about the fact that he realized that with his daughter, he was very, very close to, and he had, she was a champion tennis player and he had taken her around the country for tournaments and they just got very close and their shorthand became texting back and forth all during the day. And she is, she was, I guess, applying to medical school and she would sort of send him every negative thing that was happening. Oh, I didn't get in here or something bad happened. And he would just be all concerned by it because the texts were coming in and it would distract his day until they actually had a conversation at one point and she realized, oh, th- these weren't really big deals. I was just sharing with you. And so they agreed to, to, let's talk, you know, at the end of the day or let's, but let's stop doing the triggering interactions because it, it makes things worse for me. So the things you can control, again, you can't control everything. You can't control that you forgot the red outfit, but be kinder to yourself ask, you know, sort of for colleague tolerance for solving it and try to minimize the ones that are going to come in that aren't necessary during that day or turn, you know, turn your phone off if you need to, or on silent when you're in the important meeting. So you can at least be truly focused when you're in the meeting and then give yourself 10 minutes to deal with things when you come out. Mm. Um, We're coming towards the end of our time together. And I wanted to ask you, what do you tell your really good friends about the research? What are you if anything, you might not be trying to change them, but let's say, is there something that you really changed in your mind about life and micro stress that you are now telling the people that you're closest to? Yes. And I've changed my own life too, to, to really incorporate it. I really found the research on how important the multidimensional life, having connections with people outside of work and home was, I found that really, really powerful. So since I began working on the book with Rob, I have very actively tried to maintain great relationships with some of my friends who are, are still good friends, but we hadn't seen each other for a while, or we let the relationship drift a little bit. I, I've tried to consciously correct that. So I'm a now say yes to friends 
learned things whenever possible. In the pandemic, even we were working on the book in the pandemic, two of my closest friends from college live about an hour away from me. And we just hadn't, of course, hadn't seen each other in the pandemic, but we hadn't seen each other that much before that. We started getting together and going for outdoor hikes with masks on. I laugh now because it wasn't necessary, but we didn't know. But we just wanted to be together in the stress of the pandemic. And that continued on to we had a girls trip together and we're doing a weekend in the in New Hampshire in a couple of weeks. It's just understanding the importance of those relationships and how powerful that can be to sort of soothing some of the other, the natural effects of micro stress. I think that's a really important lesson. It, there's lots of research about the importance of healthy relationships on our overall health, the power of loneliness and how terrible that is for our overall health. So understanding that you need to continually groom and invest in authentic relationships outside of work and family is a really, really important thing that I've taken away from the book. I love that the research validates that. It feels like you're summarizing my gut feeling in in research, which which is so good because we are always too busy. It was the same thing. I, I haven't told this to my friend. You can see in the background, this is obviously not on video, but you can see all my beds. So I'm doing this at the mo- this podcast from our study. And there are two beds because we have building works and we're hosting two adults and obviously have three young children. So it's all a bit crazy, but my gut feeling is that it's so important and to have those connections. Yeah, I completely agree. So thank you you for validating. (laughs) 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 Because sometimes I think I'm too crazy for my own good. Uh, Crazy, not in a bad way, of course. So what I wanted to finish with is just if someone is in the midst of overwhelm, and micro stress. And here's this conversation really identifies with it, but just doesn't know how to start to make their lives a little bit easier. They still want to be a good parent. They still want to progress in their career and give everything. What would be one or two small five minute things they could try this week just to get started on that journey? So in the book, we have a diagnostic in chapter five. If they have a chance to get the book, they can see that there's a kind of tool, but you can do this just even in your mind, where you try to just identify the sources of the types of microstress, what's happening, you know, misalignment with colleague, surgeon responsibilities at work or at home, et cetera. Try to identify what the microstress is and where it's coming from and then also try to identify where you're causing microstress for other people. And once you've thought about that for just a few minutes, maybe pick one or two that you're going to try to shift or change the interaction so it's not causing microstress for you or for someone else. And see what happens. See if removing something, one thing, makes a big difference. I think it will. So I think, you know, it's overwhelming to think about changing everything, right? And working parents' life is filled with filled with microstress. But if you can take a few out, see if it feels better. And again, add, and what you add is some positive connection that will just make some of the microstress seem less important, like exactly like you talked about with your choir, with singing group. So if you can take something away and add one thing, I think you'll find that a pretty good start to feeling a breath of oxygen. Absolutely. So, and actually, just as a complete side note, if anybody is listening to this from Southeast London, I don't say global podcast, but still, our choir is still looking for basses and tenors and maybe some altos should be interested. (laughs) But Karen, your book, I really enjoyed. Where can people find it? Where can they find out about your work, your articles? 
So thank you so much. I appreciate your your interest in that and your kind words. It's on Amazon and booksellers everywhere. And it, it's you can sort of find some more information online on robcross.org. My co-author has a lot of resources from the book and sort of snippets of the book and lots of other articles you can read that are related to this. Welcome people getting the free app on the, it's called the Micro Stress Effect, the app on the Google Play Store, or the Apple Store. And you can find out or connect more with me on karendillon.net. Perfect. Well, it was really nice connecting with you. Thank you so much. I feel like it's been a personal therapy session, which I'm <laughs> extremely very grateful for. And hopefully stay in touch. I will closely follow your work and see where the research takes you next. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I wish you all good things. And I go for the choir. If I were local, I would, I'm an alto. I would try to try out for your choir, but that sounds fantastic. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. And thank you especially to everyone who's connected recently with me on LinkedIn. It's been so surprising how many of you have reached out and I really, really love getting your messages and I always accept your connection requests. And I love all your suggestions on where to take the show next. It's obviously a really hard work thing. It might not sound like it, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes to put out the podcast. And hearing that makes a difference to real life people is just really, really lovely. So thank you for that. If you've liked the podcast and if you like those themes we talk about and you actually want to connect with some real life people around them, then you should definitely consider applying to the Leaders Plus Fellowship program, which is a high impact program supporting you to progress your career with little ones in tow. There is one program left starting in 2023. Applications for that one close on the 31st of October 2023 and the details are on the website leadersplus.org.uk. You can also find info on some of our free events on there. And we always do have hardship fund spaces available. On the fellowship, you get access to really inspirational role models who have been there, done that, with bringing up kids whilst progressing your career. You get support with practical challenges, for example, workload management or saying no. You get really important time for yourself to think about what you want in your career, what you want for your family and how to make it happen together with a group of very, very supportive and very amazing peers and some very experienced facilitators as well. So if you want to look at it, then leadersplus.org.uk is the place to go. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the programme. And they're all involved in some shape or form in driving change for working parents. And I should say the satisfaction with work-life balance have gone up significantly as well. I think it's more than doubled compared to the starting point of the programme. So I'm really pleased with that. Big thank you for all your support and especially also to all of those who've left reviews for the podcast. It is such a helpful thing and I'm extremely grateful for all of you who've done that or who've shared this episode with a friend that could benefit from it. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your week.